You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. You'll find stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or on your way out of worship this morning. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're willing and able in honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll look at a number of passages this morning, but I want to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 to get us started. Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are starting a new series called Deathly Devices, which you've probably seen in some of our promo materials that have gone out. The Puritan writer John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. In this series, we will look at the so-called seven deadly sins. Better termed, the seven capital vices. A list of these vices was first compiled in the 4th century by a man named Evagrius of Pontus. 4th century writer, a desert father, solid 9 out of 10 on the beard scale, Evagrius was. He was a desert father, meaning he, along with another group of monks, they escaped to the desert in order to intentionally separate themselves from the wiles of the world. What's ironic is that as Evagrius and these other monks escaped to the desert and became a part of this community designed for greater intimacy with God, what they actually discovered was a greater awareness of their sin. This list of vices, it's become known as the source vices, meaning these are like ever-bubbling springs. and From them flow many, many other vices. Or to use an image that was very common in the Middle Ages, picture an ominous tree with a large trunk and seven main branches. Each branch represents one of the capital vices. And from each branch grows many other vices. The image communicates then, if you want to deal with the sin in your life, you must take an axe to each of those branches and ultimately take an axe to the trunk of the tree itself. So what are these seven deadly sins, these seven capital vices? Vainglory, envy, sloth, 
avarice, wrath, gluttony, and lust. This will be the outline for our series. Each week, we'll look at one vice, and we'll follow essentially the same trail each week. Each talk will have three parts. First, we'll conduct an anatomy of the vice itself. We'll ask the question, what does God's Word teach us about this vice, its power, its dangers? We must see it and understand it if we're to find it in ourselves. See, these vices, they're not like a broken arm, an injury that's very easy to spot, pretty simple to deal with. Now, the vices are much more like cancer, much more challenging to see, much more challenging to eradicate. Naming the disease, seeing the vice, that's the first step. Second, each week, we'll consider how our devices cultivate the vice. Now, this is what will make our series, our present series, a bit unique. Sin has been a tendency in the human heart since the beginning of time. Sin has existed in the world of man since Genesis 3. Lists like this vice list have circulated since at least the 4th century. What makes our day uniquely challenging is that we have on our persons nearly every second of the day a device with great power, including the power to cultivate the vices. We have in our pockets a portal that can lead to countless evils. Evagrius had sinful tendencies in his heart in the fourth century. We have sinful tendencies in our hearts and an almost omnipresent technology that has the power to draw out the vices, to cultivate them, to incite them in our lives. Evagrius could go to the desert to try to escape the wiles of the world. If we go to the desert today, what do we see? Cell towers, probably. An almost omnipresent technology that has the power to incite the vices, to cultivate them within us. Third and finally, each week, we'll look at some spiritual practices and seek to develop them. Spiritual practices that will counter the vice's power. The goal of this series is not to frighten you. It is to help form you. In other words, we're studying the vices within the larger context of spiritual formation. As Christians, we grow by casting off, shedding our old life, our old former ways, the vices, and by putting on the virtues that we find in Jesus himself. And Jesus has given us his spirit within us, empowering us at all times in this pursuit of virtue, in this pursuit of Christ-likeness. So we'll talk each week about spirit-empowered human effort applied to spiritual disciplines, practices that will help combat, counter these deadly vices, these capital vices. So that's what you can expect this morning and each week. You'll get an anatomy of the vice, how our devices cultivate that vice, and then some spiritual practices to help us counter it. So here we go. Vice number one, vainglory. 
vainglory. What does God's word teach us about this vice, its power, its dangers? First of all, I should note that vainglory is not a common term in our vocabularies, right? It's also not a common term in the scriptures. In fact, it's found only once in the Bible and in the old King James Version translation of Philippians 2.3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Compare the ESV, the translation we normally use on Sunday mornings, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The word being translated here as vainglory or conceit in the ESV is kenodoxia. It means something like a vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. A vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. Now here in Philippians 2.3, vainglory is juxtaposed with humility. We tend to think of pride and humility as opposites, right? So we might equate pride and vainglory, but they're slightly different. They're slightly different, I'll tell you how. Pride is concerned with excellence. Vainglory is concerned with the display of excellence. The prideful person says, I'm the best. The vainglorious person says, I'm the best and I want everyone to know it. Now, though this term is used only once in the Bible, the idea itself is prevalent. One Old Testament and one New Testament example will have to suffice for the day. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 11, we read about the builders of Babel. Many of you will be familiar with the story. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, at this time in the biblical story, the whole world spoke the same language, and the result of that was a corrupted cooperation. A corrupted cooperation. The people together said, let us build something that will ensure, that will guarantee our renown. If you've seen the second Knives Out movie, Glass Onion, Murder Mystery, there's a character in the film. There's a character in the film who numerous times says something like, I want to be responsible for something that gets remembered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa forever. That's exactly what the builders of Babel were saying. They're saying, we want to use the technology of our day to build something that will make our names great. We want to be remembered forever. 
Now, Jesus warns about this in the New Testament as well. It's not just in the Old Testament that we see this vain glory. We see it in the New Testament as well. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that I read to you earlier, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is Jesus warning about here? He's warning us about publishing our good deeds. In today's terms, posting on social media. He's warning us about letting others know what we've done just so that we will be known, just so that we will be recognized. Jesus goes so far as to say, when you do this, that's the only reward you'll get. What do you lose? You lose the eternal reward from your heavenly Father. What do you gain? The temporary praise of man. It's not a good trade. Now what's particularly interesting about this passage in Matthew 6 is that only one chapter earlier, Jesus calls us, his disciples, to shine as the light of the world. In other words, to be seen. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. Now, what's that all about? Here in this chapter, Jesus says, Be seen! And in the very next chapter, he says, don't be seen. How do we reconcile these? The pivotal point is here at the end of chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. See, here the attention is not on us. It's not about my excellence or yours. It's not about my virtue or yours. It's about pointing people to God. To stick with Jesus' language, there are two ways to shine. You can shine like the sun, acting like you're the blazing center of everything, wanting everything to revolve around you, you give light to all things. It's right for people to praise you. You can shine like the sun. Or you can shine like the moon. Simply reflecting the far greater light of Jesus himself. So which one are you more like? Are you shining like the sun? Or are you shining like the moon? They're very, very different, Jesus says. So let's summarize this vice. Vainglory, what is it? Here's a simple definition for you. Vainglory is the AAA vice. The vainglorious person craves attention, affirmation, and applause. 
His obsession is recognition. For her, image is everything. Whatever virtue we possess, we want it to go viral. That's vainglory. Now, secondly, how do our devices cultivate this particular vice? First, I want to give you an interesting fact. The iPhone was introduced to the world in January of 2007. By January of 2021, over 1.65 billion, with a B, units had been sold, making it the most successful product of any kind ever made. Now, here's the reason I share that stat with you. We often do not see what is right in front of us. We often do not see what is right in front of us. The fish doesn't see the water. He just swims. He just swims. The water is all he's ever known. If you were born after 2007, you have never known a world without the iPhone. If you're a late millennial, Gen Zer, your adult life has been lived on devices. Like the fish, you don't see the digital waters in which you've been immersed. And that's the problem. That's the problem. In this series, I want to help you see that the one thing you cannot do, the one thing you cannot do is swim mindlessly. That's how the technological tentacles will take hold of you. Listen, I'm not saying this as someone who is anti-technology. I'm not one of those kooky people who thinks we need to get rid of everything but typewriters before AI takes over the world. Look, if the robots rise up, the rednecks can take them. It's going to be okay. There was a time when I might have been worried that we don't have enough rednecks in Florida. Then I went to a monster jam in Tampa. And I quickly discovered we got plenty of rednecks. It's going to be okay. We will be ready for the robot revolt when it happens. I'm not anti-technology. I am, however, increasingly concerned about what technology does to us whatever your age, when we swim in it mindlessly. See, here's the thing about technology. It never travels alone. It never travels alone. It always carries consequences. Some good, some bad. Some intentional, some unintentional. Wendell Berry award-winning author and small-town farmer who I cite frequently, he has an essay called Horse-Drawn Tools and the Doctrine of Labor Saving. Sounds riveting, I know, but it's actually very insightful. Very insightful. Barry uses the example of the tractor to help us see the unintended consequences of technological development. The coming of the tractor, he says, made it possible for a farmer to do more work, but not better work. 
And there comes a point, as we know, when more begins to imply worse. He continues, the increase of power has made it possible for one worker to crop an enormous acreage. But for this efficiency, the country has paid a high price. From 1946 to 1976, because fewer people were needed, the farm population declined from 30 million to 9 million. The rapid movement of these millions into the cities greatly aggravated that complex of problems which we now call the urban crisis. And the land is suffering for want of the care of those absent families. The coming of a tool then, the coming of a tool then can be a cultural event of great influence and power. Once that is understood, it is no longer possible to be simple-minded about technological progress. It is no longer possible to ask, what is a good tool, without asking at the same time, how well does it work and what is its influence? What is its influence? Now, Barry wrote this article 40 years ago. But we must ask these questions in every age of every technological development. What is its influence? See, if you're simple-minded about technology, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. So how have our devices been working on us? How have they been inciting the vice of vainglory? Think with me for just a minute about the things that have happened, especially in America, since the mid-1900s. We'll be brief here, but this is important. Media scholars refer to the 1940s and the 1950s as the beginning of the golden age of technology, of, te of television. The television did something incredible in its day. The television brought the stage into the average home. Before the television, if a person or a family wanted to see some type of entertainment, they had to go to the local theater. But with the rise of the television, for the first time, the stage came to them into their home. And the result is that people wanted to be entertained all the time. All the time. Now, by the time of the 1990s, the Internet came into the average home in the same way that the television had done some 50 years before. But it would take a long while for the Internet to leap ahead of the television as the primary entertainer. Why? Because at the time, it was connected to this big magical box, i.e., the home computer, right? And as long as it was a big magical box, just like the television, it didn't leapfrog the television to become the primary entertainer. But then we start to see these things called smartphones. Anybody remember the first iterations of the smartphone? Anybody have a Blackberry? You remember those? The thing about the early iteration of the smartphone, though, is that they went after business people. They were more concerned with productivity than entertainment. It wasn't until 2007, the introduction of the iPhone, it wasn't until then that the world got a glimpse of what would finally become the new entertainer in American culture. 
what would finally surpass the television, the iPhone. But now fast forward to where we are today. And where we are today, we have these various social internet platforms. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the list goes on. And with these, the world has seen another monumental shift. Now, for the first time in history, we are the entertainers. You must see this. The move from the local theater to the television simply changed the way we consumed entertainment. The move from the television to social media and smartphones made us the entertainers. We used to be the audience, now we're the audience and the act. See, with every tap or click on social media, the temptation is there. We must perform. We must have something to say, something to show. Lend me your eyes. I am taking the stage now. Regularly posting on social media implicitly makes these comments. Lend me your eyes. I am taking the stage now. Never before have we had such an opportunity for vainglory. The three A vice. Attention on me. Affirmation. Give me your likes. Applause. Oh, I want to do something that goes viral. So how do we combat this? How do we combat this? Hundreds of years ago, Shakespeare said, the world is a stage. <laughs> he never could have imagined anything like this. Now the world is a stage, literally. So how do we combat this vice of vainglory? I want to give you two spiritual practices that I think will be helpful for us all as we wrap up. First is corporate worship. What you're doing right now, if you're sensing in your heart this morning some conviction, if you can say to yourself honestly, you know what, I need to redirect the glory story of my life. I've been seeking far too much attention. If you know you need to redirect the glory story, there is nothing better than corporate worship. Everything we do in this time is designed to focus our attention and our affection on God. Everything. Think about it. We lift our voices in praise to God on high. We rise for the reading of God's word, God seated on high, who has chosen to speak to us. We pray, sending our prayers upward to God. Even the architecture of this building is designed to direct your gaze upward, the central stained glass, the ceiling. It's all designed to direct us upward to God, giving Him all glory and all honor. So if you're sensing in your heart, I really need to redirect the glory story of my life, there's nothing better to do than to prioritize, really prioritize corporate worship. That's the first spiritual practice. The second one, you'll likely find a little more challenging. The second one is digital silence and solitude. We need silence and solitude, and we need 
digital silence and solitude. How much, I'm sure you're asking. I don't know. I don't know. For some of us, it probably is best to get off of social media permanently. For some of us, that probably is best. For others, maybe having certain days or hours of the day that you have designated for you and for your family as screen-free time. Maybe that will work. But I think this is probably going to be true for most or all of us. Whatever you're thinking you need to do, it's probably not extreme enough. And what must, must, must be one of the most strange, I don't know, awkward pieces of pastoral counsel that's ever been given, a man named Macarius who was Evagrius' spiritual mentor. Remember Evagrius, 9 out of 10, beard skill. He had a spiritual mentor named Macarius. Macarius once met with a young man, and he gave him this piece of counsel. He said, young man, go to the cemetery, and there I want you to shout. Shout as loud as you can, both praises and curses at the dead. And so the young man went off and he did it. And then he returned to Macarius to report what had happened. He said, of course, the dead, they didn't respond. There was no response at all. And then Macarius delivered the punchline of the pastoral council. Young man, you must become like the dead. Deaf to both the abuse and the applause of others. We probably need something more extreme than we're thinking to help combat this vain glory that's going to bubble up within us with every, every click on social media. See, the silence and the solitude, they accomplish related but different things. The silence, it gets rid of the voices. The voices from the world telling us that if we're going to be anyone who matters, we must be known. The voices inside your own head insisting that you must project or protect some image of yourself. And then the solitude, the solitude gets rid of the audience. If we're alone, physically, digitally, if we're alone, there's no audience, then there's no need to perform. There's no need to perform. Finally, you're off the stage. And something beautiful begins to happen when we have these times of digital silence and solitude. When we turn the screens off, we open the scriptures, the beautiful thing that begins to happen is we're moving away from all this pressure of the world and we're moving closer to God, nearer to Him, and in His presence only will you find the unconditional affirmation for which your heart longs. See, anybody who uses social media knows that the art, the art to impressing others, it involves hiding ourselves just as much as showing ourselves off. That's why you only post certain pictures, certain videos, certain words. You know you can't show all your flaws. You must hide yourself. You must have on a mask. So whatever affirmation you're getting out there in the digital world, 
It's really the affirmation of that mask that you wear. That mask will do you no good before God. It will do you no good. He knows you all the way to the bottom. To the deepest, darkest corridors of your heart. But here's the thing about God. He knows you all the way to the bottom. And he loves you all the way to the skies. He knows every sin, every flaw, everything you would never dream about posting on social media. And still he loves you. The gospel, the gift of God's own son, is the ultimate demonstration of his love for us, his unconditional affirmation. God knows you to the bottom. And he loves you to the skies. Praise God for this good news. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your unconditional affirmation demonstrated supremely in the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. Lord, as we begin this seven-week series today, and this is a series that I know I need, I suspect we all need it in one way or another. Sin is nothing new. But this portal we have in our pockets or somewhere on our person today, it does complicate things. It does complicate things. We need your help as individuals, as parents, as grandparents, as students. We need your help. Throughout this series, God, we ask you to convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Show us the path forward. And then comfort and encourage us with the wonderful hope of the gospel. The wonderful reality that we are new creatures in you. You have given us your spirit. Empowering us each and every day. Give us the strength we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.